Welcome to The Culture Shift. We want this podcast to empower you as leaders to make impactful change in your workplace. I'm Vicky Bars, and I specialize in transforming organizations through equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. In each episode, we'll delve deep into the fascinating world of workplace culture. Join me as I sit down with an array of incredible guests, including members of our very own Culture Shift team and industry experts. Through these thought-provoking conversations, we aim to equip you with the knowledge, tools, and inspiration you need to drive positive change in your workplace. Whether it's breaking down barriers, thinking about how you include a more diverse workforce, or fostering a culture of collaboration and belonging, we've got you covered. So let's dive straight into an episode. Welcome back to another episode of The Culture Shift. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Toby Milden. Toby has worked at both BBC and Deloitte as a diversity and inclusion manager and has now gone on to launch his own EDI consultancy, Milden, as well as writing his book, Inclusive Growth, which provides a practical framework that enables business leaders to deliver a sustainable, diverse and inclusive workplace that allows organisations to grow. Um, so welcome, Toby. Thanks for coming. Um, let's have a start by talking a bit about what you do at Milden and then how you work with organisations. So we're a diversity and inclusion consultancy and we spend most of our time with heads of HR creating their data-driven diversity and inclusion strategies. And we also work with company directors and senior leaders on how they can be more inclusive leaders. Fab. Um, so tell us a bit about this book that you've written, Inclusive Growth. Um, it's about future-proofing businesses by creating a diverse workplace. Um, why did you go beyond your day-to-day and decide to get it all uh, you know, bound and in paper form? So when I was working for the BBC and Deloitte, and as I was setting up my own consultancy firm, um, I was really interested in what organisations were doing well when they were implementing diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. In effect, what, what were the key principles that were taking them from like good to great? And I built up like a really big network of diversity and inclusion practitioners, and I wanted to try and distill it down into, or codify it yeah. somehow, so other organisations could take that as a blueprint and implement it in their own businesses. It's really nice to have a method, isn't it? Like, I think sometimes it can be easy in this work to sort of not know where to start, right? Like, it's like, yeah, and and there aren't always, um, there are actually limited professional courses to become an EDI specialist, right? A lot of people um, fall into that work, I think. They do, yeah. There's loads of people who, they, they become diversity and inclusion managers within companies, and they, they might have had a background in HR or they might have been involved in setting up or running one of the employee resource groups and mm. then they, they find themselves in a full-time EDI role. Yeah, and sometimes they've got like a specific passion, right? Or they come from one particular marginalised identity and they've yeah. sort of done a lot of work around that. Like you say, working in the employee resource groups or being involved in sort of certain types of campaigning and, and that gives you a real good grounding, but it doesn't necessarily give you the frameworks and so yeah. I love that your book kind of provides that that framework opportunity for people to say, oh, actually, here's a method I can use. Yeah, and I wanted to reframe ED&I for organisations to help them understand that if they get it right, it will help them grow and prosper mm. as a business, hence calling it inclusive growth. And the book actually was born out of a lot of frustrations because it was frustrations that I experienced as an EDI manager in companies like the BBC and Deloitte and it was also born out of a lot of frustrations that I was hearing my my colleagues or associates 
within the industry also voicing as well. So I thought, okay, if those are the frustrations, what are the, what are the solutions to those frustrations? And I tried to kind of document that uh, in, down in the book. Yeah. So you've mentioned a few of the organisations that you've worked with there, but you've worked with so many others. There's, you know, NHS, um, Centrica, Mitchells and Butlers, Sony Pictures. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges facing those sorts of organisations in trying to achieve their diversity and inclusion goals? One of the most common challenges that I hear a lot is um, organisations not having enough data Mm -hmm. um, or their data is very kind of fragmented or piecemeal. So they feel like they don't have enough data to be able to make the right strategic choices for their organization. Um, there's also a lot around just the senior leadership team being really um, invested yeah. and engaged in the whole ED&I agenda. Um, so you might have a, a company senior leadership team where half of them are on board and engaged and the other half are not quite mm. convinced that it is of strategic importance to the business. And the reason why I'm mentioning t these two is because they go hand in hand. What, what I've found is that data helps CNE leaders understand the importance of ED&I because they start to understand the, the real world problems that some of their employees are facing in the company that they need to address. Yeah, and we know that senior leaders aren't always necessarily from the most diverse backgrounds, and so mm. giving them evidence and information about the experiences of more diverse employees and, and the experiences they're having and the struggles with progression or retention in those sorts of roles, for example, mm. um, is really powerful, right? And they need those narratives to make decisions. So yeah, you're right, yeah. like data is really powerful. Um, you say, look, some, some people don't have that data. I, I mean, my experience... Sometimes it's about like not having captured and collected that data consistently yeah. for long enough um, and not you know, understanding and, and using it effectively is the other one. So I've, I've been in organizations where actually they have lots of data, but they've never really crunched it or looked at it or like yeah. compared it or, you know, for, for example, for us at Culture Shift, you know, running a reporting platform, we encourage people to collect demographic data in those reports, but we don't... Um, we, 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 what we need to do better at actually and something I've been talking to a few of our organisations about but I would love to press more so for anyone listening um, is to make sure that, that the way that they're collecting the demographic data in the reporting site maps onto the way they're collecting the demographic data in their HR systems yes. so they can compare them because yeah. the reason we encourage that is so people can understand like have you got an over-representation of uh, black Asian and minority ethnic staff who are reporting issues is there an over-representation of women experience sexual misconduct probably yes but yeah. having data to demonstrate that and share that with people who can then help fund initiatives and make decisions about what the organization does to address it is is so powerful yeah i mean hr teams are usually sitting on a mountain of data mm -hmm. and information but they're just not mining that data effectively and they don't, they certainly don't have a diversity and inclusion lens over it so they're not able to see any inequalities in their performance management process or or even looking at things like their exit data. Is there a disproportionate number of people leaving the organization from a particular demographic? Mm. Um, that, all that information is sitting in a HR information system somewhere. You just have to go digging for it. 
Yeah. And some of the challenges I've seen is that those systems don't talk to each other. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People love to like get this new fancy recruitment system and it doesn't track through to your HR system and it doesn't track through, like you say, yeah. to your exit data. So actually being able to thread who is who's arriving, who's succeeding and who's leaving is really challenging. Yeah. I mean, so many IT systems don't talk to each other. And I work with loads of clients where they've got, um, you know, such an old system and it's almost that it's too painful to move away from an old system and adopt mm. a new system that would be better for them. But just the thought of having to move over to a new system is, you know, gives them nightmares. Yeah. I remember at one of my previous employers, we were trying to do some work around um, people who are transitioning and being able to record that data effectively. For example, like requests for different names or pronouns, um, when people have got a gender recognition certificate, different gender markers, those sorts of things. And um, yeah, systems were just like the hardest part of that. Like the will was there in the organization. Yeah. And we like convinced people that that was, like, you know, good and right and necessary to support trans employees. But yeah, the ability to actually um, do it but do it in a way that means that someone hasn't got to like go to every single IT system they've ever used. There should just be yeah. like one place that you can be like, this is the central store for that information. And ideally it filters out. But yeah. unbelievably like that is not in 2023, something that most organizations are capable of doing. And so I think the policy approach that we took was that there is someone who understands which of the systems need changing. And there's like a dedicated contact that yeah. if someone says, I'm, you know, I'm changing my gender and I need that, um, and my email and my name all updated in the systems. They knew all of the systems that needed to be gone to, yeah. right? Because, yeah, it's just it's such a minefield otherwise. So we've talked a bit about people falling into EDI roles, um, but like I think more and more people now are starting to think of that as a career choice. And mm -hmm. um, Have you got any advice for someone starting out early days as an EDI professional? Yeah, I think one thing that stood me well is having corporate and commercial experience and mm. back, uh, with a background and it's it's the feedback that I get from a lot of organizations that I work with that they like the fact that I've come from a corporate background and they under you know and they they think that and hopefully I do but you know that I understand things like how organizations operate the politics that goes on in an organization mm. how decision make how decisions are made and things like that so I think if somebody wants to go into the an EDI role, yes, it's important to become an expert in EDI, but also think about those kind of um, peripheral skills and experiences that you need as well in terms of how you influence, um, you know. And if also think about, I suppose, the industry that you're going in. If if you want to work in the financial services sector, make sure that you've got relevant financial services experience as well. Yeah, that you understand their regulations. Exactly. You understand example. the regs, you understand mm -hmm. the language, the yeah. culture, you know, all of that is is just as important as the you know, the 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 expertise around, you know, E D and I. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think understanding organizational governance is yeah. such an imperative skill like because often what you're trying to change and influence is the way in which an organization functions yeah um, and that's why like EDI teams have so historically sat in HR services yeah. um 
I've seen that's more and more like changing and that like are they becoming their own independent departments the bigger they get in some organizations but um, certainly that's why that relationship is there is because it touches on so many of those HR functions. This is actually a topic that I I raised in my book because I I, I've had experience of both so when Mm. I started off at the BBC um, I I was in the technology department um, looking at gender balance within tech initially Mm. And I reported directly into the chief operating officer. Then I moved into a HR department and it got me thinking about where diversity and inclusion should sit. I was thinking that it was probably best under the chief operating officer because there was, I don't know, working under him, there there was a broader focus. Um, You know, yes, he was responsible for the people agenda, but he was also in in charge of things like you know, governance and operations and finance. And diversity and inclusion touches every corner of the organization. So I think where possible, my personal opinion is that it should sit under somebody like a chief operating officer. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the biggest issues that I hear a lot is that diversity and inclusion is seen as the HR department's responsibility. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they do take the lion's share because it is all about the people agenda mostly. But diversity and inclusion does um, affect marketing and communications, workplace and your facilities management, um, procurement, um, supply chain. So I don't think it should just sit within the HR remit. And it's interesting because HR often are seen as a challenging part of the organisation for people to interact with. And if your EDI agenda is entirely based there, it can actually start you off in a on the back foot perhaps a little bit yeah. um, and obviously like HR aren't the enemy but like perception is that they are there to protect the organization and I think Edie and I you know you know the perception should be that it's there to support and enhance and like grow the organization just yeah. like in your book so I think yeah there are so many useful tips there for people who are starting out and early on in their journeys and yeah if people listening take one thing away hopefully it's like understand how organizations work across the board and get specialist skills in the key area you want to go in I think those were some really useful tips thanks you're welcome so um on your website you talk about the importance of culture over tactics in creating enduring inclusive cultures which I love um can you share some insights on what this means and how organizations can effectively shape their own inclusion cultures let me let me start with the problem yeah um, so what a lot of organizations do is they focus on the tactical stuff. So they get very busy organizing lots of events, initiatives, and they're, they're, they're good at raising awareness and getting the conversation going, which is important, mm. but they don't really get to the root cause of issues in the organization. Yeah. So it is important, for example, to recognize International Women's Day but it's not looking at the systemic issues about why, um, you know, disproportionately more men are getting senior positions in an organisation compared to women in yeah. the business, for example. And this is where we have to think a lot more kind of systemically about things. And part of that is culture. It's and really, in that, and I kind of made the point in my book that I actually struggled to write the chapter about culture because it, it felt so big and unwieldy to me I, I just couldn't get my arms around it yeah. and then the partner that I worked with at Deloitte said to me you know actually culture is quite simple it's just our day de- it's the sum of our behaviors moment to moment day to day 
and it got me thinking that okay if it's if it's about our behaviors that's what we need to be focusing on it's 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 helping people behave more inclusively towards one another this this happens at different levels you want your senior leaders to be role modeling and walking the talk mm -hmm. because whether we like it or not people look up to their senior leaders and they emulate and it what sets they a tone do. right absolutely yeah yeah and um, it sets the tone if you've got um if you've got leaders behaving badly it just filters throughout the rest of the business mm -hmm. yeah so the lead start with the leaders but then make sure that everybody across the business is is following suit and behaving in an inclusive way yeah and i think there are so many like powerful initiatives that you can look at that really get people to think about their day-to-day -day thinking and behavior and obviously like um, unconscious bias has been a or implicit bias has been like a very popular um, mm. topic within the EDI arena for quite some time. And I know it's also received some quite bad um, uh, evaluation, I guess, um, yeah. because it's not just good enough for people to like recognize and understand that they have them. It's actually about the actions that result as a, yeah. a, from it, right? And like, how do you um, adjust those actions and how do you check and balance those behaviors? And how do you make sure that, you know, perhaps, perhaps like on a recruitment panel, if we're thinking about the underrepresentation of women in senior roles, like how do you make sure that people aren't just hiring people that like look and act just like them? Yeah, and the thing is, unconscious bias training has developed a bit of a bad reputation. Mm. It hasn't been helped that, um, for example, influential political figures in the UK are, you know, are, are saying that it, it's a load of rubbish. I always say to my clients that there's nothing really wrong with unconscious bias training. Where the problem tends to lie is what you expect that training to do. Yeah. So if you expect the training to fix everyone's biases and everyone starts walking around the office not being biased, um, that's a very unrealistic objective. You can't do yeah. that in a one or two hour training session because we're human beings. We've got these innate biases. There. They're part of the way that our brains are engineered. They're part, you know, and, and they're in part down to how we're influenced by society growing up. Um, so, A, the objective of the training needs to be, you need to be quite realistic about it. It needs to be about raising awareness, if anything. But then I want, I want organizations to think about the systemic bias that's mm -hmm. going on. So what's going on in their various business processes that's creating inequality and bias? Yeah. Are they using language in their job ads, yeah. for example, that is turning candidates away because it's, it's using biased language? Or like too many criteria, right? I think there's exactly. research out there that shows that women um, and people from like black and Asian minority ethnic yeah. groups are less likely to apply for roles if they've got like huge requirement lists yeah. because the research shows that they are more likely to... Um, or less likely to say that they meet all of those criteria. Yeah. Whereas um, my understanding is that men will apply on fewer of the criteria yeah. and be like, oh, actually I meet most of those, so I'll, I'll do it rather than waiting for that. all of them, right? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I, I don't know the, the exact statistics off my head, but there's definitely a thing where men, if they feel like they meet half the criteria, criteria they'll apply for the job whereas women feel like they need to meet like 90% of the criteria. Mm. So when I was working at the BBC, we, our, our job adverts um, used to run over like four pages. <laughs> That's so long. And, and it was because 
it was because they were just copied and pasted from previous jobs. Yeah. And I used to call it the covering your ass syndrome. Yes. So managers, and you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do yeah, this. Managers yeah, managers felt like they had to cram everything in the job description because if that candidate turned out to not be very effective, they could go back to the job ad and go, oh, you know what, but look what we, you know, this is what we recruited for. You're not meeting the criteria. Anyway, so I used to work in the um, user experience and design team and we had copywriters with us. And we, we rewrote all of our job descriptions and we did it manually um, before, you know, we looked into technology that could actually tell us where the, the, the biased language was. Yeah. It was a bit of a manual exercise. But one of the things that we did do was really simplify the job ad mm. to fit on a page. And we, we really scrutinized them as well. So we, we asked ourselves, you know, is this really an essential criteria? You know, does it have to be on the job ad? And we, we managed to drastically reduce the criteria. What we noticed was that we had an increase in people applying for the role, and we also had an increase in women applying for the roles as well. Which and, great. you know, that, it was such a, a useful exercise. Yeah. And, and I think the thread there between, like, understanding that we have biases, they end up filtering into our writing of job adverts but there are things we can do to check against those and there are yeah. like there are websites that you can look at like bias if you just like type in like gender bias language tech checker i think on yeah. google or whatever like it will fi- you'll find one yeah. um, and those are really helpful for kind of checking that you're not being like we need a strong candidate who you know loves to do very masculine things <laughs> i can't think of a word off the top of my head but that is the way it comes across isn't it yeah. and so it's it's yeah connecting those dots between understanding that we have biases they might come out in our writing and there are systems and processes in place where we can check check against yeah. those it's not just the gendered um bias language it's 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 looking at other criteria so for example if you've got a criteria that says something like uh you need to be a strong communicator um if the role doesn't require strong communication i.e you know if you're not working in a call center speaking to customers or you're not writing copy for ads and things like that um why have it in there because Mm. having a sentence like you need to be a strong, effective communicator, communicator who's extroverted and able to get on everybody on the team. That could be really discouraging, discouraging for somebody who's neurodivergent, for example, mm. that might struggle with um, communication. Yeah. Um, so it's just bearing those things in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on from thinking about that, we would love to talk a bit about um, how you overcome resistance from senior leaders when you're trying to implement like ED&I change. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I find that fear is the biggest thing that causes mm. resistance actually amongst senior leaders. They are worried about saying the wrong thing that causes offence, that makes them look daft, that makes them look like they don't know what they're talking about. So there's a little bit of ego gets in the way as well. Um, and I think it's this fear that holds a lot of senior leaders back. And w- I suppose a, a psychological response is therefore to avoid having those difficult conversations or meaningful conversations that we should be having. And therefore, I think it's really important that anybody who's kind of facilitating the ED&I agenda with a senior leadership team is to focus on creating safe and brave spaces. Mm. Yeah, 
So I think um, for anybody who's facilitating the EDI agenda with um, a senior leadership team, it's actually to help create safe and brave spaces. I mean, I wish I came up with this myself, but it was the, I'm very much borrowing the work of Brené Brown, the uh, researcher over in the States. Yeah. And what I find really interesting, she talks a lot about creating safe spaces, mm. and that's really our ability to be able to speak up and not be worried about being shut down or... or um, yeah, or reprimanded for sharing our thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Um, but she says we need to go further. We need to create brave spaces. Because one, one thing she challenges us is to think, who are we actually creating safe spaces for? Because if you've got a senior leadership team who are, say, majority um, you know, white European men, um, are you creating a safe space for them? Because that looks very different to creating a safe space for somebody who comes from an ethnic minority background, for example, or who's got a visible disability on the board. Um, and therefore, we need to create brave spaces, which is where you can have more meaningful, deeper, impactful conversations. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, there is so the point around fear, there is so many valid reasons why senior leaders might be experiencing fear. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of anti... Um, anti-woke rhetoric I would say yeah. um, and you know Edie and I work is considered woke by a lot of people yeah um, and so there is a there are, you know there's a lot of criticism for what we do yeah. um, and I think for senior leaders they like need to be supported in feeling bold and brave in order to counteract that fear of um, negative criticism repercussions on you know their job is to protect the entire organization right yeah. to think about the organization's reputation and if they're worried that doing an initiative that might be seen to be favoring certain types of people for example um, might then bring them negative criticism they're going to shy away from that if they don't yeah. feel they're like supported and backed up and then it comes back to your point around with evidence and with yeah. data and if they can turn around and say actually you know we're doing this within the realms of the law like um positive action is something that we can do legally yeah. um, it is not the same as discrimination <laughs> yeah. and we have legislation that backs us up on that and yeah. um, we have data that shows there is a serious need to address this yeah. and you know we have confidence that the program is you know, thoughtful and considered and well planned and going to meet the needs of these particular people. Yeah. Like, if they've got all of that, they should hopefully be able to be brave, right? Definitely. And, and also, they need to understand the why. So mm. lots of senior leaders, they, they've read the McKinsey reports and they go, okay, I, 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 on a cerebral cognitive level, I understand the importance of diversity and inclusion, but somehow... Like, I can't connect it to our business, yeah. you know. And every business is unique. Every, every organization is individual and has its own culture. So part of the work that I, do, I like to do with senior leaders is actually find out their why yeah. um, and get them to maybe come up with three key reasons why for their business. And then they can then cascade that throughout the rest of the, the organization because the whole organization needs to understand the why. I mean, I did a survey recently with a, with a client. They've got offices all over the world. Half of the staff felt that um, the organization wasn't doing enough when it came to ED&I and should do more, and it was really important. Mm. And then the other half of the employees felt like the organization was doing too much already and that they should be focusing on the, the, the really important commercial aspects 
of the mm. business. So there was a real division in, in the organization about whether or not the business is investing enough time and resources into, into the topic. That's really interesting. And I imagine, like you say, the why was probably not that well understood there, right? Yeah. And now that's what we're working on. Now we're working on the why with the chief exec and the senior leadership team because it has to come from the chief exec. And then we'll, we'll cascade that throughout the business. And they work within the energy sector. So mm. we're linking it back to energy. It's about, it's about um, a sustainable, renewable future of energy. That, that's the work that they do. Yeah. So a lot of them, it was about um, remaining relevant, remaining innovative and cutting edge because the work that they're doing is to try and, and make us carbon neutral. So it's, you know, there's it's a so relevant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a real link there. Yeah. But they hadn't made that link in their minds before, before we'd gone and got the data from the employees. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, for anyone listening, have you got any advice around um, sort of practical strategies that HR professionals and senior leaders can do to kind of really home in on that sort of authenticity around this work? Because this, like you say, like there's the the why is really important and like how do we make sure that that why remains authentic yeah so again i'm going to pinch work from somebody else because i don't know if you've read simon sinek's book start with why i haven't read the book but i've seen his ted talks yeah, yeah. So his ted talk is amazing yeah. um and what he says is that the 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 process of your finding your why it's it's a process of discovery rather than invention mm. so if somebody working in HR wants to work with their, their senior leadership team on this, the why already exists in their organization. They just have to go looking for it or discovering it. And I think the why is important, coming up with your own unique reason why. Um, and then that, that's the way of getting everybody else on the side. Because if you look at how you affect change in an organization, um, if you look at, say, something like um, the, the model that John Cotter created around, you know, he, he, he lays out kind of eight steps to implementing change in, in a business. He says, first of all, you know, your first phase of activity is called creating the right climate of change. Mm. And in that, he says, have a senior coalition or have a coalition of people to really drive the change. Create a sense of urgency. You get that sense of urgency through the data collection because that's your people telling you, hang on a sec, there's a problem here. Um, and then thirdly, uh, create your vision. So if, if a senior lead, if, if somebody in HR can focus on those three things, get the senior co coalition together, um, create a sense of urgency with data, um, and start to create the vision, which is linking to the why, the why should be part of the vision, then that's probably a good place to start. So we've talked quite a bit there about the why. Um, I'm really interested also in how we get organisations to move from sort of merely acknowledging the, their why to their how. Like, what yeah. is it? What does a, a good strategic framework look like? Um, and not only that, but like I've been in so many situations where like people have got really well written plans, and then they've not like implemented them very well. And what yeah. are some of the like pitfalls there that you've yeah. you've experienced? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That was a big observation. Um, so it sounds quite painful, but first of all, you need to go and get the data and mm -hmm. make sense of the data. You also need to do a bit of a benchmarking or gap analysis because you want to compare where your organization is now, operationally speaking, when it comes to ED&I, 
and where you ultimately want it to be. You end up with a whole heap of information on your desk. You then need to make sense of that. And what I, I suppose, I, I, I say it's a bit like organizing that information into um, buckets, yeah. what I call strategic buckets. So for example, you know, when I've done this with a client, they've created strategic buckets like leadership, culture, governance, attracting talent, retaining talent, developing talent, partnerships, um, uh, policies and processes. That, that they, those are kind of the strategic buckets that we come up with. And then you start filling those buckets with those uh, initiatives, actions, activities, and things mm. like that. So that's kind of like creating the strategic framework. Um, when it comes to then implementing, you're right. Um, and again, this is something I touch on in my book. There's a huge frustration with, with a lot of organizations that create lovely looking strategies and they get them put in a nice glossy brochure with their lovely branding and their logo. And then it, they get forgotten about. Mm. And then two or three or five years later, like, oh, we need to like, renew that. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, but why has nothing changed around here? Yeah. It's like, well, you came up with a lovely strategy document, but you haven't actually created like the delivery plan yeah. that goes with that. So that's you, you then need to create a roadmap. Um, and basically what you do is you take those items in your strategic bucket and you start plotting them out over a three or five year time period. Mm -hmm. What I quite like is organizations thinking about phases of maturity. Yeah. So um, one of my clients, for example, talks about starting, maturing, and leading. Yeah. So, and that maps onto a three-year time period as well, quite conveniently. So they've got like a starting year, a maturing year, and a leading year. And each year, they're building on the previous kind of building blocks. Um, and that, that's, that's quite a good way. Um, when I worked at the BBC, I worked with a manager who would always talk about crawling, walking, running. Yeah. Um, Another analogy might be uh, ice, water, steam. So ice is something that it's solid. You know, you know you, you've got the details. Um, it's year one. You can crack on and do it. Water, a bit less defined. It's still, you know, you've still got your head around it. And then steam is just like, it's an idea. You'll get to it in about three years' time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Love it. Thank you so much. Th thanks so much, Toby. This has been such an amazing and interesting conversation. I've absolutely loved going through your book and like, yeah, mining your um, brain for all of this fantastic sort of advice and guidance that you work with organisations on so regularly. So I think there's so much there for our listeners to take away. And yeah, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Culture Shift. We hope you found it insightful and informative. We really appreciate your support and value your feedback. So if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, share your thoughts, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to stay updated on when we release new episodes. If you're interested in our other content or how Culture Shift can help your organization, check out our YouTube channel, website, or drop us a message, and I'll see you next time.